I'm terrified at the moral apathy, the death of the heart, which is happening in my country. These people have deluded themselves for so long that they really don't think I'm human. I had basis on their conduct, not on what they say. And this means that they have become, in themselves, moral monsters. When Ahmad Arbery was murdered on February 23, 2020 by Gregory McMichael and his son Travis McMichael, we, along with many Black Americans, were kept in the dark for over two months. Video surveillance was released, and although the violence was disturbing, this kind of violence against the Black community is anything but shocking and nothing new. We were confronted by the following questions. Why does this keep happening to our community? Have we not suffered enough? Does brutality against Black Americans not stop during a pandemic? In order to answer these questions, we invited three guests on the podcast. To answer the question of the past, we have UCI history professor, Dr. Jessica Millward, for the current legal implications of the case and all those related to cases of brutality against Black Americans, we have attorney Christy Hornsby Battle. And for questions relating to the media and their role in the reporting of these cases involving Black deaths, we have writer and producer Callie Holloway. Our first guest is attorney Christy Hornsby Battle. I guess, can we just start off with a little bit talking about yourself, um, what you do? We know you're currently located in Georgia, right? Right, Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, so can you tell us about what you kind of do, how you got involved with the justice system? So (laughs) my mother and my sister are lawyers. We have a law firm. It's called the Hornsby Law Firm. It's located in Atlanta, Georgia, in the southwest Atlanta area. Um, And we're right in the middle of um, our Black people. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. That's the best place. That's a good place to be. (laughs) So my mother has been practicing for over 50 years. Uh, She was one of the eighth, it's either six or eighth. We can't, I can't remember. (laughs) But she's one of the uh, six or eighth um, Black females to pass the bar in the state of Georgia. Um, when she went to law school, they, they weren't allowing lawyers, uh, black lawyers to, um, to go to law school. Um, so there was a black lawyer who was an apprentice. I mean, he, he started a law school for them to do it through a pr- apprenticeship. And so, um, because they weren't allowing black lawyers to um, go to law school. So she went there. Um, she did apprenticeship for three years, came out, And actually, during that time, they weren't allowing but maybe about two um, Black lawyers to pass the bar um, at a single time. They just weren't. John Marshall was having a, she didn't pass the first time, but John Marshall had a um, bar prep course. And so she was considered to be the one of the first um, Black lawyers to attend John Marshall Law School here. And, um, And then she passed the bar. Wow, that's really impressive. So, I mean, what kind of cases do you guys usually take in at your law firm? So we do, we used to, under my mom, because I was her paralegal for 15 years, and that's what kind of jogged me to go to law school, because, you know, I figured she was getting a little older. Um, My sister was a public defender in Fulton County, which is one of the counties here, is one of the larger counties in Georgia. I just felt like nobody else would be able to take on the law firm. And so I just figured I'd go to law school. So I did that. Um, what we're doing now, so we used to do everything. 
Uh, we used to do anything from employment law to criminal, civil, any kind of civil cases, um, all kinds of um, landlord, tenant, I mean, just whatever it is, because my mom is kind of a staple in the community. And so whenever anybody had any kind of issue, they come to her. Mm -hmm. And we just had to learn, and I had to learn. And so I, I figured, you know, let me just go on and go to law school, get this done, and then be able to um, to take on whatever she what she's done in the community. So that's that's what I did. So we did everything for probably the first five years of me practicing, and then it it wiped me out like totally, like mentally, physically, it just wiped me out. So now we only do criminal and personal injury. So you do criminal. So what kind of cases in particular do you see coming from like your community? Oh, Lord, Jesus. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> now, my sister, because she was a public defender, she got to handle everything. Mm -hmm. Her name is Avis Hornsby Culpepper. My mother's name is Louise Hornsby. Because my, my sister um, did criminal as a public defender, and my mom did too, like she did a whole bunch of stuff. But my sister is very well versed in like the murders and all, all that stuff. Um, I kind of am a little weary about taking that kind of stuff because you're, you're really on a different level when you're taking murder cases. But for a public defender, um, she would have to take a murder case because she's a public defender. So mm -hmm. If they couldn't afford a lawyer, which is a lot of times what happens, then they would have to um, deal with the public defender. So um, she does the the bigger crimes. Although I I, I take a lot of aggravated assaults, um, aggravated batteries. We went on a trial for that. Um, we do anything from small DUIs, um, traffic cases speeding, you know, where people have issues and going to lose their license, or in Georgia, we have a super speeder law um, to, to, to the max. I mean, we'll do it. I, I definitely wanted to take some um, murder cases with my sister, but we just hadn't really found one mm -hmm. to do that together. Yeah, well, you've kind of covered a lot of ground within your career. As a Black American and as a lawyer, how do you view this case with the mod Arbery. I mean, Marie, can you comment on that? So uh, Georgia, I guess the Southern states are a different um, element. Um, you know, we, we definitely see racism on a whole different level. When Obama was in office, I think that people just on, in a general stance did not do or voice their um, racism card. Whether it would have been um, racism, LGBT, you know, everybody kind of just sat still. But now with Trump in office, it's just, it's it's crazy. It's just like everybody is now um, the people who felt some type of way, who wanted to be racist, are showing their cards. Mm -hmm. They, as I would say, have their um, cloaks on, have their... You know, they just are showing showing who they are, and they're not scared or afraid of it, and that becomes a whole different um, thing. In this case right here, um, and in the time that we are in right now, 
it kind of makes me feel for them um, because it's just we're in a different time and this time is just a really scary time it, it makes me feel like that time when my mother was practicing law back mm -hmm. in the day and that that's really where i have the problem how do you view the legal action taken or lack thereof after Ahmad's passing oh we definitely know there was a lack thereof <laughs> that's kind of clear that there was a lack thereof uh, it shouldn't have taken two months plus for this to come down the pipelines one of the things that I appreciate you guys, y'all kind of challenged me to, to this because, you know, as a lawyer, you have to go and research some of the stuff that you might have to talk about. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things that I was trying to understand was um, there is supposed, so in the beginning, they kept talking about this uh, grand jury and taking it to the grand jury to see if the grand jury would indict. Then what happened was um, once it got to the, I believe, third prosecutor, he decided, um, along with a, a Republican AG, decided to bring in um, the, the GBI. So once that happened, um, they actually went and, and did, did, something, did something different, which is, they arrested them. Mm -hmm. they, they took what they had and the information they had, and instead of them doing the grand jury, which is how a lot of officers get off, and, and I, I want you all to understand that when, when we're talking about grand jury, the prosecutor goes in there with nobody else, and they get grand jury indictments on stuff that's stupid. Mm -hmm. stuff that makes no sense yeah. so all these other cases of um unlawful killings or unlawful arrests or where they've shot a black man just for being in his car for driving while black for walking while black mm -hmm. for just being black when they take it to the grand jury and they're not getting a grand jury indictment to me as a law as a lawyer that means that the prosecutor is influencing the jury not to, not to indict, mm -hmm. okay? Because when I tell you the indictments that we've seen come down the pipeline makes no sense, it just makes no sense. Mm -hmm. So in this case, they were supposed to do an indictment. They didn't do that. They brought the GBI in and the GBI did the arrest. Mm -hmm. So my question to myself when y'all brought all this to, to me was what are they going to do about the grand jury indictments and do they have to get a grand jury indictment because that was a critical question if they're going to seek the death penalty or in this case these are murders mm -hmm. it seems to me like they're still going to have to do a grand jury indictment i'm not sure about that but i really believe that that's what's going to have to happen um and then at that point you know, but one thing about it is they are um, they are arrested. All three of <laughs> three of them now. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether you all know, but they did arrest the person who did do the video. Yes, right. they did. I just saw that. I was like, well, okay. Like, I don't know. Like, so okay, it's interesting. So you say they chose a different route. Um, they chose to arrest them. Do you feel that that was done because of the re uh, released video? Absolutely. Yeah. And then my question to myself and my mom and my sister, like we sit in kind of at the round table and talk 
is why did the guy with the video come out with the video? <laughs> it was like, I really didn't, it, did he really think that it helped himself? I think what he did was he went to a lawyer and the lawyer told him the best thing for him to do was come out with the video. Because oh, okay. the, the lawyer is the one, according to what I read, the lawyer is the one who, who released the video. He's not his current lawyer, but he is, I guess, I guess a lawyer friend. Mm. And he came out with the video. He leaked it. So I think that this guy felt like they were going to somehow get the video anyway. So he said, look, leak it. Act like you're the one who helped the whole situation. Mm. And then they're not going to prosecute you. Mm. The problem with that is you got the two McMichaels in jail and they're going to tell what <laughs> what he did right. and, and what happened. And then I... <laughs> <laughs> right it all just kind of blew up for him you know like yes yeah, i mean this is murder when when people got murder murder cases they gonna talk so they're gonna tell exactly what they did and that that's that's where that came is this like a because this is likely happening time and again like likely in the south but it's happened all over america really there's a history of lynching especially lynching black men i mean also women we just saw brianna taylor she got murdered within the comfort of her own home. And it's, it's just crazy how many bounds are crossed within the black community by non-black people. I mean, is this fairly typical within the Georgian judicial system? And do you think that, is there gonna be any justice within this process or is it not likely considering like the track record? That, that is a great question. Um, and I, and I, I, I thought about that, I've given it some thought um first of first of all georgia like some like most of the southern states is a good old boy system mm -hmm. um i've seen that uh, multiple times if you don't know what good old boy system is that is where they take care of their own i mean it's just what it is i see it all the time when i go into court um and and sometimes like i said i i definitely can say that um i get good treatment, decent treatment, but I also believe it's because of my name. Mm -hmm. But there is definitely a good old boy system here. Mm -hmm. And it just, I mean, that's just what it is. It, um, and it, it, affects, it affects a lot. It affects a lot of things. Um, as to what I think will happen here, I think because the GBI is, is quite interesting. I just took a as lawyers, we're supposed to do a continuing legal education. Mm -hmm. And what I did was um, in taking my continuing legal education class, I took a class that included the um, head of the GBI. <laughs> the guy who's been talking all this time was in my class. And so mm -hmm. that was pretty cool. I was, uh, you know, a little bored by the class, but I liked him because mm -hmm. he was just very interesting. Um, but you know, in, in looking at what, what I believe he's capable of, I think that he will give them enough evidence to, um, for them to really take a plea. That's, that's really what I think. Mm -hmm. I think they'll take a plea. I just don't, with the video out, I think it's even, it's hard for white people to see that it was nothing more than a murder. Right. I was, yes, I was just having this conversation with one of my good friends. Like, it seems like 
there's always some sort of like outweigh in terms of these situations. Like there's people with, um, I can't remember, just so many, so many cases where people are like, well, he was yelling, he was acting violently, he was doing this, he was doing that, basically saying he warranted whatever circumstances awaited him. But in a, a Mott's case, like it's literally, it's so hard to argue with that because the video footage is there and it's yeah. right in front of your face. This is running. And, and you see the guy, you see the guy who, the guy who took the video, I was wondering, which it answered my question, but I was wondering why he went sideways. Do y'all realize like when he went, he went sideways, like as yeah. if he was blocking. Mm -hmm. So it clearly showed that he was blocking the way for him to come back. He couldn't have ran back. They yeah. were they were blocking him in. Yeah. And I just I you know when you look at, at what happened. Okay, so I also wanted to let you all know in Georgia, um, because what they said is they were making a citizen's arrest. Right. In Georgia, citizen's arrest is for a felony. It's OCGA seventeen four sixty. And what happens is um, a citizen can make a an arrest when they see a felony um, happening, okay? Mm -hmm. And then they have, they have uh, the right to hold the person till the police come. A lot of the, although that's what it is, a, a lot of the citizens' arrests are, are done when you're talking about people shoplifting. Mm -hmm. And you just will have security hold them until the police get there. So security are not police officers. Um, they're just citizens acting, you know, to protect the, the, um, the facility. And then they hold them until the police come. That's really what the citizens arrest was mostly about. Mm -hmm. um, in this case, there was no felony being committed. Um, it was about him going into this property. So I don't know whether you all have... Um, have found out but what happened was the guy he had, he had come into the property mm -hmm. and um they had video of that well they had a police out what they found out was the um the owner of the property had been complaining about some people coming in so the police um one police officer i don't know who he was in the county had suggested to the owner of the property that what they needed to do was um, contact the McMichaels every time they had a, so when, when, when anyone come in, comes into the property, the cameras uh, show and then there's a alarm that goes to the owner. Mm -hmm. So what, what they said was when that alarm goes off, that motion detector goes off, then you need to contact the McMichaels. Because the McMichaels will handle the situation instead of you calling us every time something happens. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a problem. You don't you don't call because the McMichaels are former police. Mm -hmm. That don't mean you call them to handle your situation. Right. I think that that's going to be a big a big issue with the civil suit with the family. They're going to be able to attach the police department based off of that. Mm. Right. But they're even digging up things from Ahmad's past. Like, I, I know that there was a video of him getting confronted by the police over, like, a potential shop shoplifting um, event or something like that. I'm not sure about the specifics, but they're really digging deep into his past for 
things to question his character and it's such a reach because it's not even applicable to the situation so do you see this as like low-hanging fruit do you see this as like applicable evidence or no i mean in in georgia first of all in georgia we have um we have it's kind of similar to the rape shield um you can't just bring up a, a victim's past to say, well, oh, they did this. Because first of all, everything's on video. <laughs> so the most that he did at the time of the incident was a misdemeanor trespass. Right. Um, if they're going to bring that up, they have to bring up everybody else who they had videos of their misdemeanor trespass. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand that they got all this stuff from the owner of the building because they were coming after him, I'm sure, civilly. Yeah. Uh, him or her, whoever they were. And so um, that person provided all the text messages, um, everything that dealt with the house because they want to be out of it. Mm-hmm. And that just shows that really, if you you understand the McMichaels, one of them, I believe it was the father, dealt, actually had a dealing with him in a criminal case. I think, they, it was, yeah, it was the father, I think. Yeah, they prosecuted prosecuted him and and made it so that he had a probation violation. And so they knew who he was. Right. It's not like they didn't know who he was. They mm-hmm. knew exactly who he was. Um, clearly, the police have been harassing him. Mm-hmm. And so it all kinds of put, kind of puts together a connection with this kid in this community. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like they didn't like him. They had labeled him as a troublemaker, regardless of the small stuff that he did. I mean, because everything that he did was small. Right. Mm-hmm. But they just labeled him as a troublemaker because of his color. Exactly. And so I think that at this time, when, when he did what he did, I don't know whether the owner contacted him, which I'm, I'm assuming he did, he or she did. And then they just went on a rampage. You know, it was good old, good old times as usual. I think that's where everybody gets the lynching part from because that's just how it is. They load up in in their trucks with their guns and decide that they're going to, you know, find them one. You know, it's like the Emmett Till. It was, it's just hard. No, exactly. Exactly. I mean, really, you're getting me, like, we're getting heated talking about this. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) honestly, so in your opinion, what defense do you foresee Ahmad's killers like utilizing them in court. I, I don't see a defense. Okay. I see a I'm white and he's black. Yeah. And the jurors are not going to. The only defense that I see that they have is that a um, the lawyers may think that they can put up a defense in order to um, because they're because of the town and the place that they're in. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, there is no defense. Mm-hmm. There's no defense. I, I, I would tell my clients to plead. I mean, I, I would tell them I would not go to trial. It would be a waste. And, you know, what, what we're really waiting on is whether they're going to ask for the death penalty. But I, I just wouldn't, I, I would not, I would try and work out the best deal I could for them. Right. Because there's nothing on the, they have video. The video is clear. Um, is there, do you see any, any hope for Ahmad's family's lawyer, Lee Merritt, to rebut those claims or to get any sort of justice for their family? Or do you think that there's any justice to be had in cases like this? 
I believe that what has happened is it's been uh, civil justice. Right. I believe that uh, from from my research of looking at other cases in the past, uh, the families have not, even families who have not gotten the criminal justice that they should have gotten, have gotten the civil justice. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, it's I will say this, um, you cannot ever replace the life of a person, mm-hmm. but if they are willing to uh, put up money, it definitely helps a situation right. where a lot of these families did not have it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that I think that these uh, men, I believe that they they're gonna plead. Mm-hmm. If if one of them turns, which I believe may be the video taker. <laughs> then yeah. I believe that the it will generate uh, pleas for the others. And what they're going to be pleading to is not to have the death penalty put on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I definitely believe that the police department will have some problems. And that's where they're, because they're not going to get any money from these men. I mean, you know, that's like getting blood from turnips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think that they can, you know, unless they're trying to get somebody's pension, I don't think that they're, they're really going to get any money from them. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that the police department has some hand in um, contacting the owner to then uh, set the McMichaels in motion. And I think that with that, I think they're going to sell. I, I, I think every... I really, I'm, I'm hopeful, and, and believe me, I, you know, I, I try to be as hopeful as I can. Mm-hmm. But I think that in this case, and that's why I'm so thankful about um, cameras and videos and all that. And I really think the guy who took the video was being very cocky. Mm-hmm. I think that they wanted to have what you would call a lynching on video, mm-hmm. and he got caught up. Yeah. Because you ask yourself, what was he doing? Why was he videotaping this? Exactly. I, I think he wanted to see it. He wanted, you know, and that's sick. Mm-hmm. But um, thank God for that. You know, and I think that justice will prevail because I'm not, I'm not heard a white or black person give an excuse for what they saw on the, on the video. Because mm-hmm. right. in the end, he, he would have committed nothing more than a misdemeanor. And they they had no business approaching him. You have to think about. Um, oh my God, I I hate even even thinking about him um, in Florida, in Florida, who was killed over the M and M's. Trayvon. Mm-hmm. So you have to think about Trayvon. Trayvon, in the in the beginning, they said that that um, who was the guy who got off. George Zimmerman. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Zimmerman. So Zimmerman claimed that he had a right to defend himself. Mm, But remember, he was the one who came up on Trayvon. Mm -hmm. So imagine if if Ahmad had a gun. He had a right to defend himself. Yeah. These these folks just came up on him with weapons in hand. Mm -hmm. If it's nothing more than an, an aggravated assault. 
But I mean, it's like, why are you coming with shotguns? That's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. Is that? I want to ask you since you're in Georgia, what is that? Would that be your the stand your ground um law? Stand your ground, absolutely. So that would be stand your ground for our mod. Yeah. Not stand your ground for them. They yeah. came to him. Yeah. So if he had blew them away, you know, it's like, then where would we be at this point? Right. Because that was the same thing that Zimmerman said. Right. Mm-hmm. It was just a matter of two people had a weapon and one person did not. Right. And but they came to him. They brought the altercation to him. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, so I, I don't, I, I really, I'm, I'm very hopeful that justice will prevail in this case yeah. because we need to see that. We need to see that in this time, you know, where our president is just acting a fool mm-hmm. and, you know, just really um, acting as if racism is okay. Mm-hmm. You know, he acts as if all of it is okay because he really doesn't care about us. Mm-hmm. And so that is giving people a reason to uh, stand up on their podiums and act as if racism and killing um, people for no reason is okay just because of the color of their skins. That's a problem. And I do want you all to understand that Georgia, um, which I, I did not know this. I had to research it myself. Georgia does not have a hate crimes law. Mm-hmm. So that is why they wanted to try and um, do it in the federal. Mm-hmm. They want to try to bring up federal charges uh, for the hate crime. So I, you know, that, so now the legislature is le- revisiting Georgia. Georgia is among maybe a handful of other states who don't still do not have the hate crime law. Do you think and of course, you will understand why. Yeah. Do you think this is going to like give people a reason to put that law into place? I believe so. Yep. Good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, hopefully justice will prevail in this case because like you said, you mentioned Trayvon. It just comes full circle, you know? It does. Absolutely. Our next guest is UCI history professor and core faculty member of African American Studies, Dr. Jessica Millward. Kind of just give us a little context into how you became a professor at UCI. I went to undergrad at the, the University of Utah, which is a campus that looks very much like UCI and that there aren't a lot of people of color. There certainly aren't a lot of black people. Um, it's very conservative. It's, it's like UCI in a lot of ways, but I actually happened to meet some wonderful professors through the African-American studies program and two professors in the history department that um, kind of influenced me and, and, and helped me to see that even if no one else has gone to college in your family, that there are professors there that are accessible and are, are um, interested in you succeeding so at a very very early point in my college career i knew i wanted to be a professor because i saw the kind of impact they had in my life so then i applied to ucla i went to ucla and have a degree in african-american studies i have a master's degree in african-american studies from ucla i stayed there and received a phd in history My first job was at the University of Illinois, and then I saw a job opening at UC Irvine. I said to myself, self, myself (laughs) said, huh? (laughs) And I said, gigs in the UC system are very hard to come by. 
but I also knew the kind of life I could have as a professor and the kind of impact I could make. Mm -hmm. So I applied for the job at Irvine and here I am. And that's, that's the story. I mean, I knew that it would be a campus with very few people of color. And because I came from a campus like that, I knew, I, I knew instinctively, or I know instinctively what my responsibility is um, to the people, even though they're few in numbers. Right. And what does that responsibility look like to you? It looks like getting on a podcast Sunday afternoon. At three <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It looks different for different people. I think because I am um, a person of color and I am first generation, um, I sometimes I'm even harder on those students because I know they're going to have to be tougher when they graduate. It means while all my other colleagues are going to the main graduation on campus, I need to be at the black graduation. Mm. So sometimes it means I have to do double work. Mm -hmm. But it's important that people see us and they know we're accessible. And most importantly, that they see us and they know they can do this as well. Right. Yeah, it's almost like a ministry. I think that in, I, I know you're not supposed to say that in, in academic settings, but I know for those friends of mine that those of us that do African-American studies in particular, we feel like it's some kind of calling. It's a ministry. Like we're here. Mm -hmm. We're not supposed to be here. And our job is to make it so other people can be here. That's really interesting. It's like a good perspective to hear, especially for students who, you know, feel like we're alone and we're part of 2% at UCI and even less at some of the other UCs. So this is like, um, it's really, we're really glad we're coming, you're coming on here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. No problem. Um, so yeah, I guess we have like a sort of theme for this podcast and it's the recent death of Ahmad. So we wanted to start off with that. Personally, how much do you know about the case? And as a history professor and Black American, how has this death affected you? Well, of course, because I'm a his historian of slavery and the African American experience, um, there are so many Ahmads. Um, and, you know, sometimes there's great outcry and sometimes there isn't. I think the fact that his death comes, well, people knew about it in February, but the videos are surfacing now in a time where we're in a pandemic and um, even loyal conservative supporters of the president are, are questioning kind of what the role of government is. Mm -hmm. I think um, I think the country is already at a frenzy and we're, we're already eating each other. We're already like carnivores eating each other up. I think there are certain segments of society who are concerned that whatever scarce resources there are, that people of color and immigrants are going to take those resources. So now you add that to the fact that this is a racially charged crime. It was a, it was a lynching. I was thinking about this because I knew you would ask me. I was thinking about this video footage they have of someone who could perhaps be a mod art going into the house, not taking anything, mm -hmm. but just walking around and looking at the construction. I've right. been thinking about this, how often um, people do that. That's what they do. If there's a house that's under construction, people go in, they look around. Yeah. There's no evidence that I've seen that whoever was on camera took something. I know many times when there's houses under construction, homeless people go and live there to have shelter. And so there's no evidence in my mind that this young man was stealing anything. Right. There's no evidence in my mind that the young man had committed a crime beyond being somewhere he probably he shouldn't have been. 
So then we pan out and we see, you know, the father and son, the ex-police officer, hunting this young man down. And video has now surfaced. Well, the person who turned over the video was a friend of theirs that was in a car mm -hmm. with them. And he's afraid of death threats. I think the whole thing is really ironic, ironic when you think about, um, this is not a direct answer. Point blank period, he was hunted down and he was killed in a way in which white vigilantes have been doing, uh, uh, doing to black people since the end of slavery. Mm -hmm. You could say even before, since slave patrollers, their job was to track black people's movements, find them and make an example of them. Right. But certainly since the end of slavery, we have white vigilantes that eventually become known as the Ku Klux Klan, mm -hmm. establishing their own form of law and order. So I feel that that's what George Zimmerman did with Trayvon Martin. I feel that that's what the police officers did when they were choking Eric Garner. Mm -hmm. I feel like, I mean, there's just, we go on and on and on. So this husband, is, this father and son, former law enforcement, with some other man in one of their cars, are not just going to hunt this man down. They're going to record it. Mm -hmm. They're going to record it and make this spectacle. Why is the person who's recording the video, why hasn't he stopped at some point, got from behind the camera and told his friends, you know, this, 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 this is not going to be good. This is going to be a murder. He allowed a murder to take place. Right. Then turns over the footage and then is upset that he's getting death threats. It and makes no kind of logical sense, ladies. That's what I'm saying. It makes no logical sense. And is that display, like that morbid display of murder, does that qualify it as a lynching, in your opinion? To have a lynching, you have to have more than two people. You have to have more than two people. You have to have a witness. So we have, if it would have been just the father, Ahmad, it, we could still kind of define it as a lynching because it was about violence. But yeah. now we have not just the son participating in it, but we have someone recording it. That is a witness. That is about uh, racial terror. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine why the man was recording it, though I thank him. I feel like when I replay the, my, the scenario in my head, I see these um, white men chasing this man down, calling him the N-word, mm -hmm. giggling and laughing. This guy's recording it. Because, you know, there's some kind of sick pleasure in inflicting pain. And so he's recording it for a reason. I don't know what he thought he was going to record. If they went to get their shotguns, this was going to only end one way. So I don't look, what was the question? I'm, I'm, I'm incensed about this. No, we were just kind of talking about the term of lynching and how it has transcended it still takes place today, maybe not in the same fashion, but that violence. And oftentimes when you think of lynching, you look at pictures in history books and you think that that's, even though there have been cases like that since, um, since lynching has been considered illegal, um, mm -hmm. oftentimes you see cases like Ahmad and you don't really put two and two and think that's a lynching. And mm -hmm. also the last recorded lynching was on March 21st, 1981. So we were just intrigued by the fact that it was actually referred to as a lynching rather than just a murder. Mm -hmm. So you put that into good context with that explanation. No, this is a lynching. Um, I feel like there was actually a later lynching in Jasper, Texas. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the person's name. I feel like it happened in the 90s. It might have happened in the 2000s. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you just do a Google search on Jasper, Texas lynching, 
there was an older black man that two kids, I believe, tied up to the back of their truck and dragged him. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, well, lynching, also lynching. Yeah, yeah the, key, the key to the lynching, there has to be more than just the person, one person and the victim. There has to be, it's a spectacle. Um, governments have used it as a form of torture and social control. In Russia, they called it pogroms, where they would, um, you know, murder someone specifically for the for the sake of um, instilling t uh, fear in the hearts of other people. It has to be more than just you know two people fighting. There has to be a witness, right? And often it's vigilante justice. You know, I think as a former police officer, you would you would have enough faith in the system to call the police and make sure, detain this man, and, and make sure the system um, meted out justice. But that's not what happened. In lynching, the person who is doing the violence is both the judge and the jury, and they actually are the executioner. Right. That's what happens in a lynching. Yeah. A person makes up their mind, they kill the person, or how, whatever they do, they decide the person's guilty, and then they execute the, 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 the sentencing, the punishment. Thinking about Ahmad, and as we're talking about vig vigilante justice, which is a, like an institution of slavery, essentially, which textbooks seem to dissolve, um, what are some of the other current day struggles that Black Americans have to deal with, you know, being? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a big question, but. Oh, um, <laughs> let's start first with, let's just talk about COVID. Let's talk about the fact that Black and Brown people either through not having enough access to the healthcare system or through bias in the healthcare system, black and brown people are dying at an alarming rate. Let's just start with this moment where we are. The black people and brown people are disproportionately dying at an alarming rate. It's crazy. And then as you know, the history of black people with the medical profession and how they've been used as guinea pigs mm -hmm. and experimented upon you know, right when COVID broke out, there were several scientists in Britain that said in, in the UK that they should test, we should test some, do some testing of COVID and the virus on people in Africa, because Africa as a continent must be expendable, right? Right. So there's always this sense that I think for Black people that, that we're expendable, mm -hmm. that even though Black people and their labor helped build the country, they're, they're not put into the fabric of America. So we have COVID. Mm -hmm. facing black America. The fact that our children and grown adults are still being hunted by police or quasi-vigilante people. I mean, I could go on and on. I could talk about uh, some, of the, some of the cities that have never been redeveloped. Give me an issue. Give me an issue <laughs> in the U.S. that isn't interlocked with race, class, and gender, right. and I'll be really impressed. Exactly. But I think right now, Ahmad Autry is kind of on the forefront Victims of COVID are on the second. Do you feel like this resurgence of white First of all, do you think there is a resurgence of white supremacy, or do you think that just within this presidency, it's been bubbled up to the surface, whereas it was more underground before? Well, first of all, let me say that I was raised in Salt Lake City, Utah. Mm -hmm. So I know um, outright racism and discrimination. I know more calculated discrimination. I know um, people who are ignorant to the fact they're racist. Mm -hmm. I know um, very volatile hate speech, right? Right. And this could be all within, all within, you know, people I knew and grew up with. So 
for me, I think I have a different lens to it. Mm -hmm. I think many uh, mainstream Americans um, think that with the election of uh, Barack Obama that we had gotten past this issue of race, mm -hmm. and many people of color knew we had not. Mm -hmm. And I think with the election of Trump, Trump not only gives permission for people to not be politically correct, he actually gives them permission to move upon those actions, right? right. If you think about some of his election speeches and even his speeches as president, he says, um, you know, that's a nasty person. That's a nasty person. And he gets the crowd riled up. So there is a, a particular moment of race mongering, right? And hate mongering that he, he perpetuates. Yeah. Period. And so if people went underground and were polite during Obama, I think the fact that um, we that Trump was elected shows you just how people upset people were, not African-Americans, but people were about having a black president for two terms. I think what we're seeing is just how angry people were. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, that's a good way. I think people were on their best behavior, but I think inside they were just bubbling. Right. But, you know, because of death threats to the president, because of, you know, Secret Service, um, investigating things, I think that there wasn't an actualization of some of these, um, what I call, what I'm going to call domestic systems of racial terror. But now we have a president that is actually advocating to be mean and nasty to anyone. Um, I think that that's not helping the case for people of color. So, um, and then when you hear that argument that slavery is over and is no longer tethered to modern black lives, like, how how is it, how do you respond to that something like that we're talking about presidency and all those things but how do you personally respond to something like that so because I'm a slavery scholar I also always like to enter the issue the issue of truth and not truth choice choice and agency hmm. uh, when when Africans were taken from um, the coast of Africa there were interlocutors even in the coast of Africa Africans that calculated that it would be easier to help sell certain groups of people versus letting the Europeans come into their home, right? Mm -hmm. And take their friends and family members. So there's, so there's always an act of choice and, and market determinism, but the difference between what is happening now, whether you have the prison industrial complex or other forms of um, sexual slavery that some people might not think they have any other option and they, they find themselves in, doing that's different than being kidnapped and forced into some kind of sexual slavery what we have now is people have choice and people by the very nature of the 13th 14th and 15th amendments the 13th amendment ends slavery the 14th amendment makes black citizens and the 15th amendment gave blacks the, the right to vote that 14th amendment that makes black citizens means that constitutionally people cannot treat African Americans or any kind of marginalized people the way that they had done before. Mm -hmm. That is more important in some ways than ending slavery because it made black citizens. And when you're in a citizen of a republic like the United States, the federal government's responsibility is to protect you as a citizen. Mm -hmm. But we don't necessarily see that when it comes to certain populations. I think that what we can take from African-American history, just to wrap this part up, is what all these stories don't tell us is about Black people's ability to survive. Despite slavery, they survived. Despite, despite sharecropping, we survived. Despite um, lynchings, people still survive. So what we need to really be thinking about is what allows us, either in our DNA 
or our spiritual DNA or our historical DNA? What allows Black people to continue to survive despite all of these roadblocks that are put in front of them? Sometimes I don't know the answer. I think in the middle of Corona to have this tape emerge of a young man getting gunned down, I think it was just too much for a lot of people. Right. I know it was Tatum and I were talking about like how things would have been so different if the video was never released. Oh, there would have been no justice. Let, let's be clear. And if we there still were, don't know if there's going to be justice, there would definitely have never been a, an arrest. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Um, Did either of you see the newscast where a black delivery man was going into a gated community to deliver something? And he was allowed in the gates of the community, but then he couldn't find the right um, condo or apartment. And so some good neighborhood Samaritans decided to do a citizen's arrest and blocked his truck because they couldn't confirm whether he, where he was giving a delivery and whether or not he was giving a delivery. And the customer hadn't shown up yet to say, oh, no, this has to go to my house. They kept the guy trapped for like maybe an hour. They just stood in front of his truck. So he was already backed in. The gate was behind him and he wasn't going to run people over. And they were saying that he didn't have a right to be there. He was going in to deliver, his, deliver furniture that's not an essential item mm-hmm. <laughs> during a time where there's a pandemic. And, you know, he's already fearing for his life. You know, some people, delivery people have to go into people's houses all the time. And that puts their life in jeopardy. But now he can't even make the delivery because people are suspect. More so than at any other time, people are suspect about outsiders coming into their community because you could be bringing the disease. Right. In this case, I think the guy, their fear was, this is just a black man coming into the community on top of that. It's, I actually haven't heard of that, that newscast, but it definitely- It just happened this week. It really just happened this week. Yeah, no, it definitely draws parallels to what happened to Ahmad and a lot of other African-Americans, but luckily he made it out alive. That's Hello, that right there, Tatum. It's Tatum talking, right? That point right there. <laughs> He, there was no guarantee he was going to make, make it out alive. Mm-hmm. And that man kept his desk, his, 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 his webcam on. He had, a, I guess, a camera on his truck. Oh. And there was no guarantee he was going to make it out of there alive. That's the reality that some people are dealing with now. Mm-hmm. There's no guarantee that when you have an altercation of any kind that you're going to make it out alive with the police or a random citizen on the street. Going off of that, like, do you feel like, Ahmad's passing was reminis- more reminiscent of past lynchings. I do. You know, because we're talking about if someone was killed or not killed, but I think that for Black Americans, the case is um, more often than not results of violence. It always, I mean, you have to be thinking, he knew he was going to die. He couldn't have not known that he was going to die. He knows, he's seen enough on the TV recently. He knew how it was going to end. And that's what's so sad about it, I think. And I, and I don't have, I don't have biological children, um, but I just think what it might be like trying to raise a young person mm-hmm. who knows that they are, might be prey, right? Yeah. Um, to the, at any point in time that their life is, you know, vulnerable and they're expendable. So, I mean, I feel for him, his family, I feel for the community. There was a write-up on he and his best friend. His best friend um, went to college and was working on a master's degree. And he got a f- text from um, his father that said, Ma didn't make it. Mm. Didn't go into any kind of explanation. He just 
or mod didn't make it or mod's no longer with us. It was just a one liner. And so it's sad. expected. And with that kind of definitive statement, it's like he didn't make it as in a lot of people don't. Right. Know. right. His friend knew exactly any other person might've read that text and said, huh? Yeah. But his friend knew instantly that his best friend had died. That's what, unfortunately, what some some people are living with in in America, mm -hmm. in the quote unquote freest country in the world. This concept of like freedom, but you know, black Americans are dealing with still de dealing with the aftermath of mm -hmm. something tragic. So. Yeah, I don't think there's ever been a full articulation of what freedom means in this United States, mm -hmm. uh, because freedom has always come at the expense of one group of people or another in order to have this freedom that uh, colonists, British colonists, um, were so happy to have and have this liberation from, from Britain, you know, they write a, a, they write documents, they have documents that talk about man's rights and everyone's created equal while part of the population is still held in bondage. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, they were two of the biggest slaveholders in the country at that point. Yeah, people don't like, realize that. People don't realize that. People don't like to talk about that part of the history books. We're a country of contradictions, and those contradictions are very dangerous, as we've seen with Ahmad's case and many other cases. And I like your point, Dr. Millward, about how there are so many Ahmads, you know? Mm -hmm. And thankfully, the video surfaced because justice, I don't even know what that is at, that po at this point in time. I mean, let's ask Trayvon, Trayvon Martin's mother about justice. Mm. You know, there was a whole case and George Zimmer's, Zimmerman is still walking free and has gone to, connect, gone to commit other vicious crimes like, you know, domestic violence. Yes. I mean, what is justice? Exactly. That is a big question. What is justice when there's no justice for entire communities? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A question I know coming from you, Professor, like I know a little bit about your background. So... This feeling of dealing with the past to move on, this feeling of dealing with this ghost of slavery, do you feel like that's possible at any point in time? And if so, like, what actions can Black America take to make forward strides? You know, I, the U.S. is always going to be haunted by these ghosts of slavery. They're going to be haunted with these ghosts of slavery. One, because the U.S. thinks that the majority of the population believes that we should get past slavery, that that was something that happened to someone else. Um, we as Americans don't want to be identified with this horrible, horrific history. And some black Americans think that we should get beyond it and, you know, in the name of progress, not kind of look backwards. The reality is until you understand how capitalism perpetuated slavery and slavery perpetuated capitalism and contributed to the U.S. being a dominant world power even today, I, I don't think we'll, we'll be able to, to get past it. I also don't think we should quote unquote get past it. I, I don't think we'll get past it until people are really honest about some of the things that happened and we're not ready for that. Right. Americans in particular are very good at thinking that America is exceptional. Nothing horrible happens here. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to look at Nazi Germany, much more easier to look at Nazi Germany than look at white vigilanteism that's going on here, mm -hmm. homegrown vigilanteism. So I don't think we'll get past it. I don't think we ever will get past it. I think that in addition to being haunted by slavery, we're now dealing with not just the haunting of slavery, but the very much the hunting of 
descendants of enslaved people. Our last guest is Callie Holloway. She is the Senior Director of the Make It Right Project, a national initiative dedicated to the taking down Confederate monuments and telling the truth about history. And she is also a journalist whose work has appeared in The Nation, The Guardian, Time, Huffington Post, and numerous other outlets. Hi, Callie. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I was going to say, I'm wondering, just checking, doing a bit of a health check with you guys. It's been a rough, rough week. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I... Like there's been, so I'm in LA, uh-huh. so it's a very surreal moment. I think that I'm, I feel very lucky to be like podcasting during such a dynamic time, honestly, like the generational de- genocide, we're right in the middle of it, right in the middle. So while I'm angered, like it's also given me like, you know, a chance to focus on the podcast because it talks about said issues, you know? Right. This is a major historical moment. And that's why we're so grateful to have somebody like you who's writing about it and is actively a part of the community and activism to kind of speak on some really important topics. That is a very generous description. <laughs> um, I just wanna, you know, I, as much as I think that writing is fighting and I, I can't imagine myself, you know, writing about anything else or not always, um, you know, centering us in what I'm writing. I'm always aware of the folks who are, you know, on the ground doing that work, um, okay. especially in these moments, right? When it, cause this is a cycle. We, we see this all the time. Um, it, you know, it's just a cycle that we see repeat continuously, especially over the last few years. So um, thank you for the generous uh, introduction. Um, but I just always like to mention that. Yeah, no, we, we really appreciate that a lot. Um, yeah, so you wear a lot of professional hats within your career. You're a writer, producer, senior fellow of the Independent Media Institute and the senior director of the Make It Right Project. Uh, how has your career played into your activism? I know that you're not exactly on the ground, but you are doing a lot of work. So um, do you view your work as activism? And if you do, how so? You know, I I always hope that there is something to be said for elevating issues that I think are otherwise um, and often remain ignored. So, you know, I I think of myself who is someone who's engaging in a kind of activism. Um, You know, we, our media landscape is incredibly white. It is actually, uh, you know, there, there was a, I was just looking at this the other day, there was a Pew Research study, I think it was in 2018, where they found that newsrooms are actually less diverse than pretty much every other, you know, workplace. Um, mm-hmm. so, so newsrooms are particularly white, right? Um, so kind of illuminating those issues and always writing from the standpoint with, with an eye toward um, for me, in particular, race and gender, um, and recognizing that everything um, intersects—you know that there there is no single, there is no story that is just about Black folks, or there is no issue um, that doesn't intersect with our issues. I mean, for me, that is the work that I'm trying to do, and also, you know, especially with the work that I'm doing around Confederate monuments, I think that we do an abysmal job of teaching history in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's we we have a lot of propaganda and a lot of self mythologizing that we do. Um, but there are certainly hidden histories. And I think that there are a lot of suppressed histories. Mm. So 
it's, you know, for me, a lot of this work is um, not just about, you know, centering our issues, which almost never get centered, which are so often sidelined um, because whiteness is treated as normative. Mm -hmm. uh, it's right. also about, um, it's not even public education. In some ways it's public re-education because, because what we have been fed is not the truth. And right. we, all up, we all grow up in the dominant culture. We are all socialized by it. Um, and I think uh, it's important that we counter those dominant narratives, um, which are, um, you know, they're, they're based in half-truths and often outright lies. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, oh, I don't know. That's such a good statement that you said that we have to be, like, re-educated. Um, I want to know your opinion on, in Ahmad's case, like, what role the media sort of played. So as like, you know, like the video was released and on one hand, you know, the media play, did play a role in him tr in trying to paint him as a thug because the prosecutor in the case like drew from the Brunswick News and, you know, different sorts of examples to make him look like a bad person. And that is why, you know, his clients did that, et cetera, et cetera. But then on the other hand, you know, the video was released and who knows what would have happened if, the videos hadn't been released. So I just wanted to know, in your opinion, what role, good or bad, did the media play in Maude's case? You know, I think that's, it's kind of a big question and it's a difficult question, right? Because yes. we see these cases over and over again um, where Black folks have been gunned down um, and there is a video that suddenly emerges that then goes viral and then we have black death on 24 hour constant rotation, mm -hmm. um, which I think is, um, you know, I think it's incredibly disheartening that that often it, that it often requires the kind of outrage that builds yeah. as of having that kind of constant loop of black death for the state to take any action. Um, and at the same time, I recognize that, you know, that's precisely the case, that there often is inaction um, until there's outcry. Right. Um, I, I, I don't think that deaths of white folks are treated the same way, and I don't think they would be. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, there have been beheadings of white journalists. <laughs> we, there has been, um, you know, violence against white folks that's resulted in um, death or an injury that it just doesn't get played on constant rotation. There's a kind of respect for the victim um, yeah. and these families. Um, you know, there's not this, I think there, there's much more consideration about the sort of traumatizing effects of that. So I, you know, I've been, I think that if you had asked me that question a few years ago, um, I would have said that those videos are necessary um, because they're the only things that uh, move the state to action. Right. At this point, I'm not sure that I agree. Yes, um, we saw the McMichaels be arrested after the kind of outrage that ensued once the video was all over social media. But, you know, we've seen these videos go viral before and they don't always end in justice. And, and Frank, in fact, in fact, they very rarely end in justice, mm -hmm. right? We, right. Um, we, it's like a cycle of, it's almost like pornographic the way that yeah. the, 
people release these videos, it's a cycle of this just blatant violence. And like you said, nothing gets done. We just saw George Floyd, his video. I mean, is yeah. anything really going to be done with that video? It's just kind of traumatizing the black community just over and over and over again. Yeah. And I've gotten to the point where, you know, if I have to write about something, um, one of these cases, I, of course, will watch these videos. But one, there's no lack of them. Right? I mean, I literally just got a video um, an hour ago um, that I think is probably just starting to cycle through social media. But it's another incident where a police officer um, is attacking a citizen. I think um, I, I'm a little loath to identify this person racially. I think he is Latinx. Um, but, you know, I, I'm starting to see it, you know, appear all over social media. And, you know, it just reminded me of how often these videos um, are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't feel the need very often um, unless I'm writing about it to watch them. And, you know, some days it's like, I'm just, I'm too tired. <laughs> like I, I, it is always an ask of black folks to do the emotional labor that, that white folks refuse to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is uh, exhausting, especially since we deal with so much, you know, IRL, we, we don't have to experience it online. Right. So um, I've really started to question the use of those videos and when I can, I don't watch them and I advise other black folks not to either. Mm-hmm. Because we know what, we, you know, we don't need the videos to prove to us what's been happening. Black folks have been saying forever um, that police brutality and police abuse existed. You know, um, the case that we saw in Central Park, you know, black folks have been talking forever about how white women have weaponized white women tears. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that case, Amy Cooper. Right. So, you know, for me, it's just another confirmation that um, Black folks are, are never believed. Um, it's essentially just video or it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's still where we are. But I don't think that we have to um, traumatize ourselves with it. Exactly. And that sentiment is, is kind of um, echoed in your, your article, Maud Arbery's Killers Understood White Freedom Perfectly, uh, which was featured in The Nation. And yeah. one quote that really affected um, us deeply was, white freedom, inextricable link to black subjugation is woven into the fibers of American history. From all white colonial militia patrols to keep black enslaved people in line, to the unknowable thousands of post-reconstruction lynchings that serve to blare the consequences of black freedom, mistaking itself for true American citizenship. That really just played into a lot of what we're trying to talk about, Ahmad's case, but also all of these cases that just arose this week. Um, There's a real historical link like we've been talking to with these killings, and they really are, in a sense, lynchings, because it's, they're in public, first of all, and it's just like a it's a show almost like like you said like we almost need proof that black people are being killed and it has to be and there's an almost sort of i wonder what kind of a sort of subconscious perverse almost enjoyment there is um this sort of voyeuristic enjoyment that may be happening i mean i'm not the first person to compare them to lynching postcards i mean people you know white people used to go out and have picnics while people were being lynched it you know it there's a, a kind of kinship there that feels 
uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Especially I know with the mods case, like it kind of felt like the man who recorded the video, you know, it was kind of like, why did you take this video? Like, what was, what was the purpose of that? Did you just want like it for your own personal enjoyment? And it's, it's sickening, you know, it's really, really sickening. Yeah. yeah. And it would be nice if these were questions that people in newsrooms, um, particularly, I guess, online media where you can embed these videos um, and on, on television, um, we're asking that question too. And I think it's yet another indicator of how white those newsrooms are. Um, and then just engaging in the kind of nonsense that often accompanies these stories, which is, you know, in the George Floyd case, um, I'm actually working on another piece where I, that kind of, you know, weaves into that case um, that's related to police abolition. Um, and, the, you know, there were tons of complaints against that officer before. There was... Yeah was standing by and, and watching and um, sort of um, keeping the crowd away, but, you know, aiding and abetting in, in that murder. Also had um, an incident where he used excessive force against a Black man. You know, I would love it if it didn't take um, as long for the media to dig into to those allegations as it did for them to start looking through um, the, you know, looking for arrest records. Right. Of, uh, in these crimes, right? Like there is a kind of a gleeful kind of indulgence in um, trying to put the victim on trial before um, the folks that carry out these crimes ever have to face any kind of justice. And that's, that's the way it has always been. This underlying assumption of black criminality means that we are always on, on trial. Yeah, and even it kind of starts with the phrase unarmed black men in a sense. Absolutely. But that's yeah. that's something that's always kind of stayed within my mind like why do we, why must we say unarmed black man mm-hmm. when in every other set in any other setting when somebody is killed like you don't often hear unarmed unless they are black so can you comment on that like why does the media use that wording in particular to describe these killings um i think it does go back to that idea of um you know, innate black criminality, um, that black folks are always a a threat, that there is an inherent justification to taking the life of a black person if a white person feels a hint of, um, of, of fear, which is all on them, by the way, right? You know, there's, um, that fear is rarely based in reality, right? These are white delusions, um, and the white imagination conjures up fear of black folks regardless of what's actually happening. Um, it's in the American, white American subconsciousness. So, you know, I think that the use of that, I, I mean, it, it, it hues too close to me to a kind of respectability politics right. um, and the idea that we will somehow be saved if we are painted in this way. But blackness in and of itself um, is considered a kind of arming in this country, right? You know, blackness itself is weaponized. So, the idea of being described as uh, unarmed, um, I think it's a way of trying to um, lessen what people consider um, an, the understandable threat that any white person would have felt because of the sort of inherent, quote unquote, scariness of black folks. And, and that just speaks to a very um, American attitude, um, which is why white freedom allows folks to kill with impunity. You know, there is this understanding that 
it is always justified. Also, our policing is, you know, our, our policing is literally born of slave patrols. <laughs> I mean, where our policing comes from and, you know, some of the earliest colonial laws were all about white colonists having the authority to police black bodies and black movement. Mm-hmm. That's where our modern police departments come, comes from. And that is the ethos that they carry with them. So mm-hmm. when you have this um, institution that is born out of these incredibly white supremacist, white power, violent, anti-black um, you know, notions, it's, it's no wonder that it functions the way that it is. One of my least favorite um, phrases is that the system is broken. The system is doing fine. The system is doing precisely what it was, was meant to do. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It was built for this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm interested in like Floyd's case. Like, for example, the, um, you know how they are looting and they're protesting. And like, I've heard like a whole a lot of comments on how, on how the media is portraying like black people in this current climate. So like, can you comment on that, on like the use of like the constant like rotation of like violence from the community? Yeah, or even just showing the looters' faces. That's yeah. very damaging. Yeah. yeah, doing the job of the surveillance state, right? Um, you know, I actually, in relation to this, and I know that there's never a moment when we encounter racism when there isn't a quote from James Baldwin, Baldwin that's uh, appropriate. Oh, yeah. James Baldwin, he's the one! That's our guy. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I was... Um, not just, I think, the media's response to folks looting and really uprising, right? I mean, this is a reaction to systemic equalities that we live with all the time. Over-policing, mass incarceration, um, the fact that our communities are underserved, you know, all these things create a perfect storm of highly justified rage. I mean, there is, cops are taking actual murderous action um, in our communities, right? The extrajudicial killings are a thing we live with all the time. Um, so I'm always astounded when we, or when the media covers it as if there is um, no excuse for what's happening, especially when you look at the way that they cover white sports fans rioting, for example. <laughs> we saw just in recent weeks um, that, uh, you know, folks who wanted to play golf and get their um, haircut, uh, who were storming state houses with guns, how that was covered. Um, there's, a, there's a real difference in the way that we see those things um, or the way that we see the people that are engaged in those things, the treatment that they get from the media. Um, yeah. The bold quote, by the way, is when white men rise up against oppression, they are heroes. When black men rise, they have reverted to their native savagery. Oh. And, and that's in the media. That's what the media plays out in its coverage very often. Exactly. Um, I mean, again, I think that when I won, I think it's a difficult question. Like how do we, how do we change the way this coverage looks? Right. Um, the media has the media doesn't just report the news; it it reinforces and reifies attitudes, right? And those attitudes are consequential, right? Um, and 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 the cost can be human. Um, the cost can be our our actual lives. Um, and I think that there are tips that we can give, and you know, there are. I think there is a kind of new consciousness that um, that these things have to be handled in a different way than they have been in the past. But I think one of the keys to this is just there has to be more of an emphasis at news organizations 
in getting black folks in, um, in the room, writing, and especially at the highest levels, right? Because editors decide what, what's kept in and what's taken out and what is excluded is as important as what's included. So uh, for me, I feel like the only way that we're going to change these narratives that are so deeply embedded in the American psyche that they are part of our news um, and they dictate how a story is told mm -hmm. um, through a prism that is very often not ours, there has to be someone in the room who is checking, who is saying, yeah, no, mm -hmm. right? And not just one person. I'm not talking about tokenization. Um, I'm talking about actual um, voices. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And Sydney and I are, are future journalists ourselves, and we're both Black women. Um, can you give any advice to future Black journalists out there who do want to go into those rooms and uh, rectify the issues that we're seeing in the media, just being mm -hmm. in a, like, just going in a cycle, really, yeah, whenever like these things happen? You know, honestly, I think one key thing is to stick with your guts because you will inevitably have primarily white editors who might not get your POV, who might push back on certain things, who might, you know, here is a thing that seems tiny, but it was monumental to me. Mm. Um, I wrote a piece and I never use the word slave. I think we should, you know, that is black folks were never slaves. They, they were enslaved. It was a condition. And the folks who were responsible for that were their enslavers. They weren't slave owners, which is a kind of passive way um, of talking about the brutality that they put these folks through. Um, they were enslavers. There was a much more active, you know, way that they engaged in this horrific institution. You know, I had an editor who asked me to change some of that wording, which I, I think to the, that editor, who is often right on a lot of things, but was absolutely dead wrong on this, it seemed like a minor semantic issue. I refused and I was willing to explain why, but it stayed in. And I feel like those are the kind of things, even sort of the stories that you pick or um, the insights that you might have or um, a thing you might think needs to be included, but they don't necessarily understand why. And, and, and your point is that you're not just speaking to white. I don't just, you know, my work is not just for white people to consume, right? Like I'm often speaking to black folks. So if my white editor doesn't get something that's in there because they're not familiar, I'm, that's not going to come out because we're not, we're aiming for maybe, I'm aiming for a more, and I hate this word, but inclusive audience than they are. So it's a landscape that is super white, so we need you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I would just say, you know, one, to just always sort of be practicing what you're, um, what you're doing um, and just getting better at it for yourself, but mm -hmm. also just kind of sticking to your guns and realizing that you bring something that is incredibly important to any role that you would have in a newsroom because you have these incredible insights and they are important and, um, and they're so valuable. Yeah. Just to always bear that in mind. As we were recording this episode, which was originally dedicated to the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, another black American, George Floyd was murdered at the hands of Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin. Three deaths, 
three months and three souls that join the never-ending pile of black bodies that have been ravaged by a 400-year-old system of institutional racism bred from white supremacy. And we ask, what now? Now we take action. We march, we write our stories, we rebel, we call our state and national leaders, we hold killers like the McMichaels and the Derek Chauvins accountable by using our collective power to seek justice for our fallen brothers and sisters. Black, 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 black.